Well, we are continuing through our with our study uh, through Psalm 119. Today we're looking at the 10th stanza of the psalm, which is verses 73 to 80. The writer of this psalm is writing as one who recognized that he was a stranger. He was a pilgrim in the place where he lived. He was among a people who did not share his faith. In fact, they even had a hostility toward his faith. And as the psalmist writes, we get insight into how he dealt with this reality. The psalms are prayers, of course, and so Psalm 119 contains many prayers from the servant of the Lord to the Lord for help. There was a genuine relationship that he had with the Lord and and a trust, a confidence that his Lord truly would come to his aid and help him. Really, the biggest takeaway from Psalm 119 is the focus on the Word of God and the importance of that. And as, so as, a, as, the, as a servant of God, the psalmist recognizes how vital the Scriptures are in his life. He regularly expresses his commitment to the Scriptures. He regularly asks the Lord to grant him further understanding of the Scriptures. He also asks the Lord to be faithful to actually apply those scriptures into his life, enable him to walk, to walk them out in the various situations that he encounters. The psalmist makes it clear he wants to grow. He wants to mature in his faith. And he's also very much in touch with his own weakness, with his own personal sin. He laments about this to the Lord. We noticed last week, for example, that he admitted that there were times when he was going astray from the commandments of God. But it was when the Lord brought affliction into his life that he repented and then followed the word. Each of the stanzas in Psalm 119 are based on a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the eight verses of each individual stanza all begin with the same Hebrew letter. This tenth stanza, it's the letter Yod or uh, Yoda. It's the smallest letter of the alphabet that is also known as a jot. Jesus referred to this letter in Matthew 5.18 when he said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest jot or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Some of your Bibles, you actually may have a a picture of what the the jot or what the yod looks like, and it's basically the size of an apostrophe. Now, each stanza we've noted as we've gone through really has a particular theme that the psalmist is praying about. Last week, we looked at the ninth stanza, 65 to 72, and that stanza was especially focused on the fact that God is good. God is good. Even in the times that his servants face great affliction, he is a God who is good and does good to his servants. Well, the stanza we're looking at today continues with that theme, but it gets a little more specific about uh, that area of affliction Now, we're going to be looking at the stanza this morning in a different way than we usually do. The Psalms are poetry. That's the kind of literature they are. And, for example, the idea of using a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet for each stanza is something that is done at times in Hebrew poetry. Actually, Psalm 119 is not the only example of that in the Bible. It happens a number of other times. There's another poetic method that is used in this particular stanza. It's parallelism. And that's the idea where certain verses parallel other verses. 
and each of the verses in the parallel speak of the same basic idea and add a little something different to it. One of the commentators that I, uh, that I read, uh, George Zemeck, pointed this out, and I thought it might be helpful for us to consider this morning. There are four sets of parallel verses uh, in this particular stanza. So Psalm 73, the first verse, parallels with the last verse, verse 80. Psalm 74 pairs with the next to last verse, 79. Psalm 75 pairs with 78. And then you have 76 and 77 there in the middle that pair with each other. Dr. Zemek also points out that each of these pairs really form what he calls concentric circles that refer to the psalmist's prayer request. So verses 73 and 80 are the largest circle, and that speaks of the desire for greater maturity in the Lord. Psalms 74 and 79 form the second largest circle in which the psalmist speaks of concern for fellow believers. Verses 75 and 78 form the third largest circle, and those speak of afflictions that are challenging him. And then, this, and then verses 76 and 77 form the innermost circle, and that deals with really the deepest needs that we have as, as servants of God. So with that in mind, let's read Psalm 119, 73 to 80. <clears throat> your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. O may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. I'm going to use the four sets of parallel verses that I just kind of mentioned to you as the four main points that we're going to be looking at this morning. So first of all, we see from verses 73 and verse 80 this point. Believers must remember that like all people, they have been specially created by God and should therefore serve him wholeheartedly. Verse 73, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So the psalmist begins by speaking of the amazing fact that all people have been made, have been fashioned personally by God. So that means that we should want to learn his commandments so that we can rightly honor our creator. And then in verse 80, we see that that, that, that the focus is not just outward conformity to his laws, but it actually should be a heart obedience. Like he says in verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, so I won't be ashamed. So our first point we make from these parallel verses is this. The fact that man is the greatest wonder of God's creation should be a motivation to honor him with the life he has given us. Now, in the stanza preceding this one, like I said, the psalmist has spoken of the goodness of God and that even in affliction, God is good and does what is good. He also talked about how helpful affliction was to him in learning and applying the words of God's mouth to his life. Well, the psalmist is going to hit some of those same points in this stanza, but he's going to bring out some further truths. 
the first one here in verse, in, in verse 73 is a reminder that God is the creator, and furthermore, that he is the one who created every one of us. And that's really the most basic truth of our existence. We are created by God. Of course, many would deny that important truth, but the Bible is very clear that that's, that that's the reality. And it's interesting here that the psalmist is not talking about just God being the creator in general. He, he, he says, your hands fat made me. Your hands fashioned me. So God made each of us individually. Every single person has been created by God. And then he adds that God's hand molded or fashioned him. So that speaks to the personal attention given by God in making each person that has ever existed in the world. He has determined what we would look like, what color our eyes would be, what color our skin would be, how tall we'll be, whether we'll have sharp eyesight or dull eyesight. Even physical, mental limitations are included here. But it's not just what we look like outwardly. This fashion includes like personality traits, uh, whether we're more naturally good at math, for example, or maybe the arts or learning styles, various things that are all there in how he fashioned us. And so like the psalmist, we need to be very clear on the fact that we are, each one of us, are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made and fashioned you in a very personal and individual way. Now, it's important to note this. The psalmist's point in saying this is not to boost his self-esteem. That's not the point. Instead, he's using this as a further motivation for why we should want to honor our creator with our life. God made you. God made me. There is no one who knows you better than the one who made you. There was no one who knows what is better for you in your life than the one who made you. There is no one whose words are more important for you to understand and follow than the words of the person who made you. That's exactly what the psalmist says, because after acknowledging your hands made me and fashioned me, he then prays to his creator, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. He doesn't say, help me figure out what's right on my own. Help me to, co to commit to really following my heart. Instead, he wisely and humbly asked to be given further understanding regarding his creator's commandments. Every one of us need to recognize regularly that the one true God is the one who has made and fashioned us. And every one of us need to ask our creator really regularly for greater understanding of his word. Now, this wonder of being created by God and the need to honor him with the life that he's given us leads us naturally to recognize we have all failed miserably at that. For one thing, our heart does not want to follow God's commands. We want to do things our own way. That's how we're inclined. Furthermore, even when we do attempt to do things that seem to be somewhat close to being good, we, we, it, it's never exactly right. And oftentimes it's intentionally wrong. 
Well, why is that? It's because we're all sinners. So we have to consider this next truth, and that's this. Sin has marred all of creation, so man's only hope is a new creation in Christ Jesus. Sin came into the world, of course, through Adam and Eve, and because of their sin, every human being is born with a nature that is inclined toward what is sinful and wrong. And because we all have a sinful nature, we do sinful things. We do not learn of God's commandments with the intention of following them. And because of our sin, we stand under the judgment and the condemnation of our creator because our creator has also become our judge. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Because the creator is not only your judge, he's also the one who provides for your salvation. He sent his son into the world to save sinners. The son of God, of course, lived a perfect life holy life he died as a perfect substitute for sinners on the cross he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death therefore anyone who puts their faith in jesus christ as savior and lord is forgiven of their sin and is made right with their creator and all who have that true saving faith are born again or regenerated like we read about earlier in our service they are actually a new creation Life has been changed from the inside out. One of the clearest statements of that, I think, is probably from uh, Ephesians 2. Let me just read that. We're getting close to coming to these verses in our Wednesday night Bible study. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God, in his grace, provides salvation. We receive that salvation by faith. And then we get back to what our creator made and fashioned us for. Every believer is, a, is, is, is the workmanship of God. We are newly created in Christ Jesus for good works, and they are works that have been prepared for us by our Savior, Creator, from before the foundation of the world. So, the believer can confidently pray, your hands made me, fashioned me, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. As a believer, we can pray that and know that God will answer. Well, then in verse 80, the psalmist makes a further petition in this prayer. He says, may my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. So here we see that maturity in the faith requires that believers follow the Lord with a heart-motivated obedience, a heart-motivated obedience. It's not just giving attention to the statutes of God outwardly, but it's doing it with a blameless or with a whole heart. This is the prayer of a man whose heart has been changed. He's a believer. He has saving faith in the Messiah that in his time was the Messiah to come. Our time is the Messiah who's already came, but it's the same Messiah. So his life had been changed. He had faith in that Messiah. So as a result, he's not content with just an outward conformity to God's standard. He's concerned about following the Lord with integrity from his heart. He knows that if he's content with just being a moral person on the outside, There's going to be a price to pay. 
First, he'll be ashamed before God. I mean, we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the kind of obedience we're called to pursue in Christ. Anything short of that really sets us up for living hypocritical lives. And that can lead to further problems. And there's many examples of problems that come up with that in Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Balaam, for example, was a prophet who was convinced to work against the people of Israel because of money. That was a heart problem. Ananias and Sapphira were members of the church in Jerusalem. They lied about a gift that they gave to the church, and the Lord took their life. That was a heart problem. Paul mentions Alexander, Demas, and a number of others who actually were part of his mission work at various times in his, at various times in his life, but they suffered shipwreck of their faith because they fell away from the Lord. Heart issues. That was a heart problem. And, of course, the most infamous example is Judas. Judas was a direct follower of Christ, an apostle who ended up betraying the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Heart problem. The explanation for all these people is that they were not following the Lord from their heart, and the end result was catastrophe. So we see in this first pair of verses, believers that to remember that we are specially created by God, and in Christ we are called to serve him with a new heart. In our second pair of verses, we see this. Relationships with fellow believers must be a priority for all Christians. They must be a priority. Look first at verse 74. He says, May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. So the psalmist is recognizing, yes, God made and fashioned him. He's making a personal application there. But he also knows that God made and fashioned all people. And he especially focuses here on those who fear the Lord. And as he considers focusing on living according to the commandments of God from the heart, he thinks of the need to be an encouragement to his fellow believers. We all go through times of being discouraged, times of being frustrated with what's going on in our lives, and we all need help from other people. So from this verse, we can see first that one of the most important helps in walking out the faith is seeing seeing examples of others who are applying the word of God in their lives. In verse 74, the psalmist is asking that he could be a good example for his fellow believers. He wants to live his life in such a way that others can see in him an example of one who is truly following the Lord. We've mentioned before that uh, there is a possibility that maybe Daniel wrote this psalm. We know that there were thousands of Jews in his time who were forcibly taken from their homeland to live in exile in a foreign land in Babylon. We also know that the overwhelming majority of those Jews did not remain faithful to their Jewish faith. They succumbed to the pressure of the idolatrous culture that was around them. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the ones that we know for sure who remained firm in their faith. And we know that Daniel had a great concern for the unbelief that he was seeing in most of his Jewish brethren. I could easily see Daniel praying a prayer like this. He wanted to be an example 
to others so they could be encouraged by what he was doing. God had been faithful to him, had, had enabled him to honor the Lord with some hard decisions. Daniel was faced with all kinds of difficult decisions. He wanted others to be gladdened, according to this verse, to be gladdened by what they saw in him. So he really wanted to be a good example. That's a worthy goal. We have all been encouraged by examples that we have seen in fellow Christians. None of us know everything. And the examples of others can be a big help. Husbands and wives are encouraged when they see the example of other husbands and wives who are seeking to honor the Lord with their marriage. Parents are encouraged when they see examples of other parents who are leading and disciplining and teaching their own children. Nobody does it right all the time, but we can often be helped by the example that we see in others. Young people are encouraged when they see other young people consciously trying to live out the Christian faith at home, at work, in school, wherever the, whatever the case may be. We all need examples of others who are applying the word of God to their lives and whatever their particular circumstances are and whatever challenges they're facing. So we need those examples. But we also need to be willing to be an example. We need to pray that those who fear the Lord will be that those who fear the Lord will see us and be glad because they see us hoping in the word of God. Now the parallel verse to this is verse 79. You'll see the similarity right away. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. Both are concerned about those who fear the Lord. But the prayer of this verse is a little bit different than the verse uh, in verse 74. So we see from this verse that believers have things to share, have things to share from their application of God's word to their lives that are helpful to others. In verse 74, the psalmist is asking that he could be, be a good example to those who fear the Lord so that they could see and be encouraged by what they saw in him. In this verse, He's asking for the opportunity to share personally with other believers the things that he's learned and the things that God has done in his heart. One thing we all deal with is pressure from those in the world who are unbelievers. And we will see in the next pair of verses that suffering and affliction is the context for what he's saying here. He wants to be an example of those of one who stands firm against the schemes of the devil that are all around him and meant to get him to compromise his faith. But he's also saying that as God has enabled him to do that, the Lord has given him insights that he knows would be helpful to others. As a matter of fact, in verse 79, he further describes those who fear the Lord as being the ones who know the testimonies of God. They already have some basic understanding of the, of the doctrines of the faith. They already have some understanding of the fact of how God had intervened in history, for example, on behalf of his people. They would already have an understanding of other examples in Scripture of people that the Lord had helped to stand firm in their affliction. Well, these fellow believers know and appreciate the testimonies of God, and he's asking that they would turn to him and that he would have the opportunity to share with them the things the Lord had been teaching him. Hearing from fellow Christians is another way that we grow in our faith. 
it's one of the things I appreciate about being in Bible studies, like we, the one we have on Wednesday nights, and then we have others in our church as well. But it's helpful to me in our Wednesday night Bible study to hear the questions, to hear the comments that other people in the study share. I mean, those things in themselves, that makes all the difference in how you're working through those passages of Scripture, to hear other people's thoughts. Sometimes people raise questions I hadn't really thought of that, that closely, but they'll raise things that they see in the passage or things that they've seen from other passages that might relate. That input is a help to everybody who's a part of the study. That's part of what's going on here. Sometimes we have a need even more specifically, maybe to go to a fellow Christian and ask them if they would help us through a problem, maybe something that we've seen them face that we know they might could give us insight on because we know what they've dealt with. And it makes sense to ask if they would share with you what they've learned. All believers need other Christians. We need their examples. We need to hear the things the Lord has taught them. And we also need to be humble enough to learn from other people. So relationships with fellow Christians must be a priority for all Christians. That brings us to our third pair of verses, verses 75 and 78. We'll start with verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So from these verses, we see our point number three, which is God is sovereign over all things, including the various trials he brings into the life of his people. I mentioned that idea that, uh, of concentric circles. That first concentric circle of the stanza deals with the fact that we are all specially created by God and have a desire to pursue maturity, to pursue growth as his children. The second concentric circle reminds us that we're not in this alone. As Christians, we need examples and input from fellow believers that can enable us and help us with this walk that we have in our life. We need to be people who worship the Lord together, for example, not just by ourselves. Now we're brought to the third circle of concern. That life that we live before the Lord and in fellowship with others is going to include many trials. And we are going to need a strong faith in the Lord and in the fellowship and in fellowship with good, with good Christian friends to be able to make it through. So the first thing the psalmist points out for us in this section on trials is this. Believers can be thankful to the Lord that he always brings about affliction. He always brings about affliction in his servants to accomplish his good purposes in their lives and give them a testimony that can help others. He says that he knows the Lord's judgments are righteous. These are the judgments really especially focusing on that he brings about in life. There, he's talking about the afflictions that we endure. And ultimately, he is the source of all the trials that we deal with because he is sovereign over all things. I read a biography, biography a couple years ago of Francis Scott Key. You know him as the one who wrote the Star Spangled Banner. He was also a committed Christian man. Here's a quote from Francis Scott Key on this particular issue. He said, If we believed and trusted as we have a right to do, we should always be enabled to say of everything that happens to us, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's the same kind of faith we see from the psalmist here. When he says that God's judgments are righteous, 
He means that there is a good purpose behind it all. Some of what God brings into our lives, for example, is to chasten us, to discipline us in some way. He's working to show us where we fall short and to continue to mold us as a wholehearted servant of God. Nothing that the Lord does is haphazard. There's probably things in your life that seem haphazard, that seem capricious and out of place, but that's not true. Things don't happen, for example, because he's not paying attention and something got through. All things have good purposes, and that is especially true for believers. Paul stated this very clearly in Romans 8. You know this passage when he says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, the psalmist is affirming the same truth here in Psalm 119. And note that he's not, he not only says that God's judgments are righteous, but he follows that up by saying, And in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So he's not only saying that God is sovereign over all things, including suffering. He is saying that. But he's pointing out his special, his, his special faithfulness to believers. And he's acknowledging that in his life. The Lord is so faithful to his servants that he brings specific afflictions into their life for good and godly purposes. It may be to purge us from sin. It may be to stop us from backsliding or recover us if we've already started going down that, that path. It may be to instruct us in truths that we really can't learn any other way unless we go through some really hard times. Our God is committed to molding every one of his children into conformity to his son, and he will use everything at his disposal to do that. And that is one of the main things the Lord uses to give us a testimony that can help others, which is going back to the other circle. Because much of what we learn from fellow Christians is stuff the Lord has taught them through the affliction they've gone through. And much of the stuff we have to share is things that he's taught us because of what we've gone through. It's all this stuff fits together. The next verse in this pairing speaks to the specific affliction that the psalmist was dealing with. Verse 78. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. So we see here this next point that unethical attacks from those who are enemies of the faith make things difficult, but they are responsible before God for their behavior and will answer to him. So the psalmist prays specifically against arrogant, prideful unbelievers who are telling lies about him. He spoke of this in previous stanza as well. In verse 69, he said that the arrogant had forged a lie against him. Now for a person who is so focused on living a blameless, God-honoring life, wanting to be an example to, to others, to be smeared with lies is a major suffering, a major trial. And he prays that the ones who are smearing him with those lies, that they will be ashamed. He is asking, for example, that would fit him, that they would be overtaken with confusion. I think he's asking that their evil attempts at bringing false accusations on him would go back on their own heads. 
they are the ones who should feel shame for what they're doing. We often probably refrain from praying these kinds of prayers against people who are leading and acting in shameful ways. But the Bible gives us multiple examples of these kinds of prayers that are actually honoring to him. So there's a place for this kind of praying against those who are acting in such sinful and arrogant ways. Now, it's interesting to note here that in verse 75, the psalmist was making it clear that God was fully sovereign over all the painful things that were happening to him. So that means it was the Lord who brought these arrogant, unbelieving people specifically into his life to have contact with him. But even though these people, these enemies, were acting under God's sovereign authority, they were fully accountable to God for their sin. They couldn't stand before God later and say, well, the reason we did that, you know, I mean, he prayed about it. You're the one who made, no, 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 you did it. You're the one who told those lies. And you're going to give an account for that. Both things are true. God is completely sovereign over everything that's happened, even the bad stuff, even the people who were telling lies and acting in such hateful ways against us. At the same time, every person is responsible for every, every action they take. So they're going to have to stand to give an account to God for that. And he's calling them out on that with his prayer. But it's also important to notice this. He doesn't let this become something that consumes him. You could easily see how this would consume him. Instead, the psalmist models for us this next point. The focus of believers, even in difficult times, is the precepts of God. The precepts of God. He's very much aware of their lies. It is very painful. It's a hard affliction to endure. But he does not allow that to consume him. Instead, he says, I shall meditate. I shall focus on, give careful attention to your precepts. Their stuff is lies. I'm not going to meditate on that and fret over that. Now, he acknowledges that. He takes them to the Lord in prayer. But his meditation is on the precepts of God. He will not be consumed with the lies and the evil things of others. Instead, he's giving his focus to what he knows is true, the word of God. That's where he's putting his focus. It's the word of God that's going to give him support. It's the word of God that will instruct him in the way he should go as he deals with his trial. It's the word of God that's going to give him the hope that he needs to press on, to keep going. So the psalmist gives us a very important example for fellow believers here to follow as, as, as he deals with trials he's facing under God's sovereign rule. And really, he's kind of exemplifying what he has asked for himself to do. He's basically saying, you guys who read this, look at me. Look at my example in this and learn from it. Read what, I, what the Lord has shown me as I've gone through this, and you learn from this too. He's exemplifying for us what he's praying will happen in his own life. One final point. Our final point is, from, is verses 76 and 77. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. 
So from these verses, we see that it's the Lord himself who is able to meet the deepest needs of his servants, especially in times of affliction. This is the innermost circle that the psalmist wants us to see. It is appropriately the two verses in the middle of the stanza. He has taken us from speaking first of being specially created by God and the, and the desire to want to grow in our maturity with our, in our relationship with him. That next circle, again, was talked about how important it is to have our, our connections with fellow believers, to be examples, to learn from their example, and so forth. The psalmist then gives us the context for these things, the trials, the afflictions. We all deal with them. His specifically had to do with people lying about him. But we all deal with those kind of afflictions. And he talks about those remembering, reminding us that they are God's sovereign work. And he's faithful to bring those afflictions into the lives of his, of his children because he knows they'll be beneficial to us. Now he comes to the deepest needs that we have as believers who are dealing with those painful afflictions. And we can sum it up those needs and God's provision these in two statements. First is this. The God who brings affliction is also the one who brings compassion to his servants and their suffering. He brings the affliction, and he's also the one who brings the compassion. The psalmist is trusting God in his affliction, but he's also asking for some alleviation. He's asking for some respite. From this suffering, he's asking for the Lord to comfort him with covenant mercy. He's asking for kindness from a loving father. If he's going to be able to endure these trials, he knows he's got to have God's help. He has to. It's interesting to note here that it's possible that the psalmist is referring to Lamentations 3, 31 and 32, because it's, it's the same truth. The book of Lamentations, before I read these verses, just to remind you, it's, the whole book is a lament. It's a lament written by Jeremiah because re- related to the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me read these verses. For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. In this lament... And the, the verses right before the ones I just read to you. Destruction of Jerusalem. And that and one thing he says in the middle of that is the Lord's loving kindness is indeed never cease. They are new every morning, including the morning when your enemy is destroying your city. <laughs> they never cease. Jeremiah also knows that the destruction of Jerusalem is God's righteous judgment on the Jewish people at the same time he had hope he says there in Lamentations 3 that the Lord will not reject forever he also agrees with the psalmist here when he says it is the Lord who causes the grief but he's also the one who gives compassion his abundant loving compassion loving kindness is there to sustain the people through the trial Now, that's just as true today as it was in Jeremiah's time. Interesting to note, by the way, here, bring Daniel into the picture again. We know from Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel had a special interest in the prophet Jeremiah. He actually quotes from Jeremiah in the book of Daniel. So this may be another evidence of Daniel 
if Daniel is the author of this psalm, that he's pulling from something that Jeremiah wrote and bringing it into his own psalm. Possibility there. So the God who brings affliction is also the one who brings compassion to sustain his servants and their trials. Secondly, the psalmist further elaborates on this truth when he points this out. God sustains his servants with tender mercies so that in their weakness they are enabled to live with a delight in the Lord. Again in verse 77, he says, May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Now while verse 76 focuses more on kindness from a loving father, this verse speaks more of a motherly type of compassion. Some versions translate this as asking for God's tender mercies. It's a further request, really, for God's loving support in the middle of affliction. It's a reminder, really, kind of ties, especially here at Isaiah 66, 13, where the Lord, was, uh, the Lord was speaking to the Jewish believers, and he said, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Again, in the middle of trials that makes him feel his weakness, he is trusting the Lord to give him strength. In verse 77, the psalmist is also asking for his life to be spared. He did this back in verse 17 as well. He knows that the antagonism of those who hate him could lead to his death. So here he asks that God's compassion would come to him so that he may live. I think a big part of the reason why he's asking to live is what he prayed for in verse 74 and 79. He wants to be a witness. He knows how, how important that is in the situation that he's in. He wants to live so that he can be an example, an encouragement to others in that hard place. Well, finally, we see once again that the psalmist says that God's law is his delight. God is his father. He knows he's been adopted into his family. Therefore, he has a special delight in the word of his heavenly father. So our God is our creator we have the privilege and obligation to serve him wholeheartedly because he made us. As our Savior, he has placed us in fellowship with other believers so we can encourage one another as we go through the various trials of life, trials that our Lord brings to us in his sovereign faithfulness. And we can also be assured that by his loving kindness and tender mercy, he will enable us to persevere in faith. Lord, we thank you very much for your word. Again, I want to thank you for the psalmist testimony as he writes in poetic fashion the things that he was dealing with that were very painful and difficult for him to go through. But he writes in such eloquent ways to illustrate for people like us and millions down through the centuries who have read these same words at other times but he, th thank you for using these words just to encourage us, to give us direction, to think about the difficult things that happen in our life, to remind us that, yes, you're our creator, and therefore we owe you our obedience because you're the one who made us. Remind us how much we need each other as we walk through these afflictions and to remind us that you're sovereign over them all, and at the same time you support us 
through everything we're going through. Lord, I ask for those, probably everybody in this room is going through a trial of some sort. There's so many different kinds of trials. And most in this room are probably going through something. I ask whatever that may be, that for everybody here this morning, that you would actually show your compassion to them, that you would actually support them with your tender mercies as they deal with the affliction that is especially pertinent to them at this, at this particular time in life. And Lord, we thank you that all this reminds us that the only way we could have a right relationship with you is really through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're one who has never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to receive him. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I know you made me. I recognize the fact that you made me. I also recognize the fact that I have not lived up to what I know to be right. I have a long list, a record of things that I have done wrong. I know I'm a sinner. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to commit to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can uh, make a note on your tear-off that was in the bulletin or... If you're watching online, you can reach out to us through the website. It is the name of...